Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, nepotism and the APGAR score. In addition, we'll be joined by Joel Premock and Nancy Abrams discussing the view from the center of the universe. Also, we'll find out what EDTA does. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Welcome back to Rocket Grox. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. Pretty good. Excellent, excellent. Uh, another day for fair and balanced science news, correct? Fair and balanced. So let me ask you, do you ever feel like your life's been influenced by events that happened a long time ago and by people that you never met? I think uh, a guy getting nailed to a tree at some point has influenced, but yeah. <laughs> He was our last hope, I think. <laughs> well, I'm hoping he'll come back with a lightsaber and get the oil out of the ground somewhere. <laughs> or maybe there are watermelon seeds down there. I don't know. <laughs> so have you ever heard of a Virginia Apgar, of the Apgar test? Enlighten me, oh great one. Uh, apparently this was the very first test that we all took right after we were born. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I passed mine, but... Oh, is this a blood test that tests for various possible diseases? It's actually even simpler than that. It's actually looking at five indicators, heart rate, respiration, to see if a baby's in a good condition or not. And if they're not, there are certain things they can do probably within the day to make sure that the baby will live on for at least the next year. And then after a year... Uh... <laughs> well, presumably by then you're strong enough to get going. But whatever happens in the next the first few hours or days after you're born is probably the most critical. And by identifying problems at that more point... What does this test involve? The five things, heart rate, respiration, reflex, muscle tone, and color. Each of them you get a score between zero and two. A total of 10 is uh, perfect. So babies with a score of 7 to 10 are healthy. Less than that, there's probably some problems. Oftentimes, it's related to their breathing. They're uh, either pale or they're just not breathing at all. And so they should look hmm. to see if there's any obstructions in their uh, air passage. And then if they have anything, they should be put on either medication or some aid. So apparently, <clears throat> um, the NIH now has online all of her papers that yeah. she had taken notes when she was developing this method and it's now the standard method used in hospitals around the U.S. Oh, well, good. So these papers, they chronicled not just development of her method, but also her life as well? or Partly. Okay. Yeah, this is a biographical section as well. Because of her work, uh, many more babies in the U.S. had been able to survive after the uh, 40s and 50s. That's certainly good to know. <laughs> Back then, a lot of mothers who were taking depressants or other drugs affected their baby's health, and this uh, was a very reliable way to indicate whether the mom was on something. <laughs> <laughs> I would guess. Also, if you find a joint in her pocket, that might be an indicator. <laughs> So anyways, if anyone's interested, just go to NIH, look up APGAR papers. All right, here's another test I'm wondering if you're going to pass. Nepotism. Nepotism. You know, my strategy has always been uh, to defeat my enemies by making them my friends. So uh, How's that work for you thus far? <laughs> Keep them closer, you know. I must be one of your worst enemies then. <laughs> 
Beware of the scorpion's bite, my friend. <laughs> well, this apparently extends to all humans, where nepotism among people who are at least within the same tribe or at least genetically similar uh-huh. seems to be sort of a universal trait. Basically, trust based on familiarity, right? That's true as well. It may also have a genetic basis because people of the same tribe, for example, or the same race, uh-huh. may be carrying some of the similar genes, right? Uh-huh. So as a group, you might want those genes to be passed on. Theoretically, that means if there's a group that defeats all the other groups, then basically the trust will prevail among the whole world. Is that right? I suppose so. But of course, then there'll always be subgroups within the group and just carries on and on. Such is the human condition. Yeah. (laughs) Much like the Lion King. (laughs) Nature is kind. So much like the Lion King and Disney, a group of researchers at <laughs> University of Zurich, which is a lot like Disneyland. I don't know if you've ever been there. Isn't it like all the streets are paved with gold? I, I think they're paved with hookers, but <laughs> I'm not sure how that works. They have a more educated view of society in, in Zurich. <laughs> anyway, they did a, a test with a population of New Guinea tribes where they had them play a game, which basically involved three players, involved a, quote, dictator, a recipient, and a third party was sort of supposed to look at the transactions between the dictator and the recipient. Basically, the, the task was for the dictator to give some money to the recipient. Okay. And if he didn't share fairly, then the third party was supposed to enforce him to actually share more or less uh-huh. by paying some amount as well. Uh-huh. What they found, of course, was that if all the members playing the game were in the same tribe, right. that sort of enforcement was carried out equally. Everybody looked out to make sure that everybody got equal amount of money at the end. Okay. But if one member was from a different tribe in any of those positions, somehow the group would make sure that that guy <laughs> was punished more or had to pay more. So in a sense, uh, they're looking out for their own when there's an outsider. I wonder what would Jesus do? <laughs> <laughs> he would actually take all the money involved in the game and throw it away. <laughs> then he'd get nailed to a tree for that. That's why he was so wise. Uh, so the researchers say that this basically suggests that ethnic nepotism is a universal trait. It actually extends it because most studies, when these economists play these games, are usually done with undergraduates at the local university. So they just show it in a more natural setting. Well, you know, I would be my brother's keeper, but I have no brother. Uh, you killed him, right? <laughs> it was a twin. I couldn't stand seeing myself. <laughs> he was the twin with a goatee, right? This is very fascinating work. You can take a look. It was published in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Professor Joe Primack and Nancy Abrams tells us about the center of the universe. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. In spite of all the advances made in science and theology, how and why the universe came into being remains a deep mystery. Well, joining us today are Professor Joel Primack and his collaborator and wife, Nancy Abrams, to talk about how this question can inspire a common humanity among different people. Joel, Nancy, thanks for joining us on Grox today. Thank you, Frank, for inviting us. Thank you very much. All right, so you've written a very uh, fascinating book, The View from the Center of the Universe. Could you tell us a little bit about it and perhaps the course you teach at Santa Cruz that sort of um, originated this project? The View from the Center of the Universe does two different things. The two major things are, first of all, it explains the modern picture of the universe as it is emerging today in the cosmological revolution that's happening right now. And Joel is on the forefront of that revolution, so he is really um, in a position to know uh, the really cutting-edge science. Now, the way we present uh, this picture is not with math or with long chains of logic, but we present it visually because 
through teaching a course, this course, uh, Cosmology and Culture, at UC Santa Cruz for years, we've come to realize that the way that cosmologies have always been presented in history and the way that they reach people and, and mean something, the way a picture of the universe means something to people, is to be presented visually through stories and imagery. And that's how we need to present this new picture so that we can really appreciate it and live in this universe and not just study it and, and feel ourselves outside it. The book presents the universe in this new visual way, and then it goes on to say, how can we use these new ideas in our lives here on Earth? This is a book that's not for specialists. This is a book for everybody who wants to understand what universe they live on and why they really should care. With your presentation, you include never-before-seen uh, pictures and videos. Could you tell us a little bit about those? The videos are astronomical videos, which means that the screen is basically black except for regions that represent either galaxies or dark matter or things like that. Uh, the first series of videos are actual astronomical images, most of them from Hubble Space Telescope. And we put these images in the computer, and then we're able to fly through them. We start by looking at a voyage across the supercluster that we're part of, the Virgo supercluster. And the thing that's interesting to people is that the galaxies are not just placed at random. There's a real pattern, and you can appreciate the pattern by navigating through it and seeing that the different kinds of galaxies are really in different locations and that they form long chains and filaments, and there are big regions where we don't find any galaxies, cosmic voids. Then we look on much bigger scales, and one of the things that you appreciate is that the galaxies nearby are nothing like the galaxies very, very far away, the galaxies that first started forming in the early billions of years of the universe. The nearby galaxies are spirals and ellipticals. The early galaxies are never spirals and ellipticals. They look nothing like that. Mm -hmm. And we're beginning to understand why that is. That comes out in another series of videos, which are visualizations of some of the latest and greatest supercomputer simulations. I'm one of the big users of supercomputers in uh, the United States, and we use them both to simulate the evolution of the universe on large scales and also to study galaxy collisions and other things that happen on scales gigantic compared to us, but much smaller than the universe. So understand the shape of the galaxies. Um, uh, they, um, they come about um, because they need to conserve momentum in some form. Uh, could you explain that a little bit, how the, the shapes uh, come about? Galaxies are basically, today, the, the nearby galaxies, a combination of two sorts of structures. There are what we call spheroids, for example, the bulge of our galaxy, or certain large galaxies that are pure spheroids. We call those elliptical galaxies, and disks. We live in the disk of the Milky Way galaxy. It's thin. It's about as thick compared to its size as a CD. So it's very thin compared to its size. And we live about halfway out in the disk. Now, the way disks form is that the gas that makes up the stars and dust and basically the components of the disk galaxy, the disk part of the galaxy, uh, is rotating. You can also ask me why it's rotating. We think we've understood that. In fact, my group, I think, has uh, been a leader in trying to understand that. But it's rotating very slowly. However, the gas 
can contract. As it loses energy, it falls toward the center. Toward the center of what? Well, toward the center of the vast dark matter halo, we call it, within which galaxies form. The dark matter can't lose any energy, so it can't contract. But the gas can lose energy because it can radiate it away. So as the gas loses energy and contracts, it retains its angular momentum. And so just like an ice skater who pulls in her arms, mm -hmm. it has to spin faster and faster as it moves closer to the center. Okay. And that's the reason that it forms this disk shape. The disk is the configuration that has the minimum energy for a given amount of angular momentum. So that's the region, reason that disks have the shape they do. What about the spheroids? We're pretty sure that the spheroids form, mostly at least, in galaxy collisions. And that's why we're studying galaxy collisions. It turns out that about three quarters of all the stars in the universe are not in disks. They're in the spheroids. Most of the stars for the last six or so billion years have been forming in disks. That's where our star formed about four and a half billion years ago. But for most of the age of the universe, the first two-thirds, the stars were mostly forming in disks, just as they do now, which then collided and became spheroids. Mm -hmm. And we think that that's the basic thing that happened with our galaxy. We think the spheroid was the result of a collision that happened about 10 billion years ago in our galaxy, but that our galaxy hasn't had major collisions since then. So after the spheroids form, would the natural evolution to be taken on a disk-like shape in the far future? Disk galaxies are a phenomenon that is almost over. The reason is that the gas, which is the crucial thing that forms a disk, mm -hmm. it's the part that can lose energy by basically colliding, heating up, and then radiating away the energy. The gas is getting used up. Our galaxy, as we see it today, not counting the, the dark matter, which we can't see, mm -hmm. is about 90% stars by mass mm -hmm. and only about 10% gas. Mm -hmm. And there isn't too much gas around it that's likely to cool and, and add to the gaseous content. So the gas is getting used up, not just locally, but we see the same thing throughout the universe. Mm -hmm. So the period during which galaxies of our type, of the type of galaxy that we live in, the period when those galaxies formed is largely over for the universe. But the collisions are going to keep going on. In fact, our galaxy is destined to collide with the other big galaxy in our local group of galaxies, the great galaxy in Andromeda, in about five billion years, about the same time that our sun swells up into a red giant, swallows the inner planets of Mercury and Venus. So we should start preparing now, huh? <laughs> well, we've got billions of years to live together before we even have to think about that. <laughs> of course, it's our descendants that we're talking about. Our big problem is getting through the next few decades. <laughs> Indeed. So you mentioned dark matter, and that seems to be one of the greatest mysteries of the universe. Could you tell us what exactly is this dark matter and the dark energy that accompanies it? I wish I could. We don't know. We know a lot about the dark matter. For example, I introduced a terminology back in 1983 that caught on. It's called hot, warm, and cold as a way of describing dark matter. And there was a lot of effort to try to figure out whether the dark matter could be hot, for example, neutrinos, or warm. But it's now turned out that those theories just don't work. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty clear that the dark matter is cold. The standard theory of the formation of structure in the universe is what we call cold dark matter. And my colleagues and I worked out the theory of cold dark matter in some detail in a paper that we published back in 1984. That paper correctly predicted the discoveries that were then made about the structure of the heat radiation of the Big Bang. 
and success has just followed success. The cold dark matter picture, when combined with dark energy, is the modern standard theory. So what is the dark matter? It's probably some kind of elementary particle. The most popular idea is one that the late Heinz Pagels and I introduced back in 82. That is that it's the lightest particle connected with a theory of physics called supersymmetry. However, there's not a shred of evidence that this is the right story. We're waiting for the evidence to come in. There's a very good prospect that in the next year or two, we're going to get the answer. There are underground experiments. They're always done very deep underground to protect them from cosmic rays because they're incredibly sensitive. And the experiments have improved in their capabilities by a factor of 100 just in the last couple of years. Incidentally, the leading experiment in the world right now is one that's headquartered at Berkeley. It's led by Professor Bernard Sadelet and also his colleague from Stanford, Blas Cabrera. The experiment itself is deep underground in a mine in northern Minnesota. But there are competing experiments all over the world. Another approach is to try to make the stuff. We don't have enough energy to do it today. The most energetic accelerator in the world is mm -hmm. called the Tevatron. It's outside Chicago. But next year, July 1st, the most powerful machine we've ever had is going to turn on in Geneva, Switzerland. It's called the Large Hadron Collider. And it's quite likely that that machine is going to start making these supersymmetric particles in huge numbers, and we're going to get evidence very quickly as to whether or not these ideas about supersymmetry are right. So either we'll discover it or we're going to rule out a whole class of theories probably in the next few years. And to a scientist, that's the payoff. Another theory that is a very plausible theory because it's suggested by physics that we have other reasons to like is that the dark matter might be something called axions. They're about as different as could be mm -hmm. from this other kind, the supersymmetric type. Incidentally, some other people introduced a funny name for the supersymmetric dark matter. WIMPs, they called it. <laughs> weakly interacting massive particles. And it's a right. great name because these particles would weigh, oh, perhaps as much as uranium atoms, maybe even more. And yet they'd be going through you all the time without hardly interacting at all. On the other hand, axions weigh much, much less, less than a billionth as much as the lightest particle that we've actually measured the mass of, namely an electron. Those particles would be enormously numerous, but they also behave like cold, dark matter. And as far as their effects on galaxy formation, as far as we can tell, they're virtually identical to these very massive wimps. So either way, cosmic theories work the same, but we want to find out what the dark matter is because, after all, it's most of the universe, right. most of the mass in the universe. It's what holds our galaxy and every other galaxy together, and it may be a tremendous clue to how the universe really fits together to figure out what it is. So the leading experiment in the world that's looking for axions is also going on right nearby at Livermore National Laboratory. And they're going to either rule out or discover axions as the dark matter in the next few years. So it's a very exciting time to be working on this subject. Great. And would these uh, experiments confirm or deny um, some of the frameworks that have been set up to unify um, gravity and... Um the nuclear forces? They may very well. The only idea that we have had, and this is in more than 20 years of trying, for unifying gravity with the other forces is supersymmetry. Mm -hmm. You mentioned superstring theory. Well, the super and superstring means supersymmetry. And also M theory is it's just a, 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 an attempt to unify different kinds of superstring theories. Mm -hmm. So 
all of those ideas are based on supersymmetry, and they predict that in the world that we can probe with our highest energy accelerators, including this new Large Hadron Collider, we should see supersymmetry. So if indeed the dark matter is the lightest supersymmetric particle, the WIMP, as we call it, that's good news for the superstring theorists. If it's not, that may very well doom that whole approach. I guess switching gears a little bit, are you amused by how um, the media portrays um, science in general, uh, for example, science fiction movies, or do you find them inspiring? One of the things that science fiction movies almost always do is to completely confuse the way size works in the universe. One of the things that we try to explain in our book is that the size that anything is determines its structure and its destiny. Now, take, for example, King Kong. It turns out that it's absolutely impossible for an animal to be five times taller and bigger in all the dimensions the way King Kong is compared to an ordinary lowland gorilla right? and still look the same. Galileo explained this 400 years ago. The reason is that the mass of such an animal goes as the cube of its linear dimension, mm -hmm. its height, for example, but the strength of its bones, if they're just scaled up, only goes as the square. Uh -huh. The result is that an animal as big as King Kong would immediately fall apart. Its mass would completely crush its bones. That's why the bones of an elephant look nothing like those of a gazelle. The elephant's bones are much thicker compared to their length. But, of course, Hollywood either doesn't know about that or ignores it. And exactly the same thing is true for enormous spiders or spider-like creatures right. or also uh, the kinds of movies that scale things down and imagine that tiny little things could be moving around. Uh, Fantastic Voyage was a classic film of that type. So uh, now, of course, science fiction is fiction. And the trouble is that a lot of people get their ideas about space and the universe mm -hmm. from science fiction films like Star Wars. The trouble with Star Wars is that there's nothing about it that is scientifically accurate. So you can't hear laser beams in space, though. You can't hear laser beams in space. Uh, you can't, uh, you know, come up here. Uh, there isn't any up in space. And not only that, when those spaceships are zooming around and rapidly changing direction, the force should be with them. <laughs> because when you change direction rapidly, right. there have to be enormous accelerations right. for the objects inside the spacecraft. And they're not even wearing seat belts. Great. Well, it was really inspiring. And thank you so much for your time. Are there any last, last words you'd like to add about um, yourselves or the book? <laughs> well, one thing that uh, we haven't discussed very much that's something that we try to do in the book is to tell stories and to present the modern scientific picture of the evolution, structure, uh, composition of the universe in a way that is going to be easy for people to wrap their minds around. So one of the, the things that we've done, and this came out of our course, hmm. was to after we explain some of the key ideas, ask people to get into a relaxed mood, and we have 
guided meditations, or contemplations as we call them, that try to get them to think about what it would really be like if the universe was this way. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, we do the same thing in presenting earlier pictures of the universe. So, for example, what the universe was like from the viewpoint of an ancient Egyptian or a Hebrew peasant at the time the Bible was written or a medieval monk. By understanding that those pictures were very vivid and helped those people see how they fit into their universe, mm -hmm. we begin to understand what we don't have today. We don't have a shared picture of reality. But it was an essential part of every previous major human culture. And now we have the scientific basis for such a new picture. Let's figure out how to make it our own for everybody in the world. That's what we're trying to do. Joel, Nancy, thanks for your time today. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you very much, Frank. And we were just talking to Professor Joel Premack and Nancy Abrams from UC Santa Cruz. Their book, The View from the Center of the Universe, is now available at bookstores around the country and online at Amazon and Barnes & Nobles. So check it out. This is Berkeley Grok, you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, the Grokotron 5000 and the question of the week. So stay right there. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, and now it's time for this week's edition of the Grokotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today's question is dark matter or supernova? And here are five subjects. Subject number one, dark matter or supernova? Uh, Tom Cruise. Uh, supernova. Supernova. Please. Well, at least he thinks he is. <laughs> yes. So there's some brilliance to him. Well, not that he's brilliant. It's that he's totally not, not, not invisible. Subject number two, mathematical physicist Stephen Hawking. Well, Stephen Hawking is probably the leading expert alive today on general relativity, our theory of space, time, and gravity. That's the theory that really told us that the universe is mostly made of dark matter. So also, Stephen, uh, I think, is a popular icon, partly because he seems an almost disembodied voice, uh, because, you know, he has uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, mm -hmm. Lou Gehrig's disease. He's lost almost all of his muscular control, but nevertheless, his brilliant mind is still behind all of those uh, thoughts that uh, we can read about in his several books. So uh, I think that uh, intellectually he's a supernova, uh -huh. but uh, in some ways he's a lot like dark matter, and uh, the dark matter aspect uh, connected with gravity makes me tip toward the dark matter side. <laughs> okay. Subject number three, Star Wars character Yoda. <laughs> Well, he's so massive. <laughs> On the other hand, he isn't, he isn't dark. <laughs> but uh, I don't know anything about that that, that represents a supernova. Uh, Tom Cruise may be a short-lived phenomenon. Who knows? Yoda may go on forever. So uh, uh, I think I'd go for dark matter. Subject number four. Okay, I guess another celebrity. Uh, Oprah Winfrey. Well, Oprah Winfrey, definitely the supernova. I'd go for that. <laughs> She's just a, a, a force of her own. Um, in that sense, she could also be dark matter, though, because dark matter is so powerful that it holds the whole galaxy together. So in that sense, she also, like Stephen Hawking, is both supernova and dark matter. All right, lastly, and um, 
I guess, um, our perennial favorite, the President of the United States, George W. Bush, Dark Matter or Brilliant Supernova? I'd go for Black Hole on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what supernovae uh, become, uh-huh. uh, either neutron stars or black holes. He certainly, uh, there's a certain danger that the direction that uh, George W. Bush has been leading us uh, may be uh, in the direction of a black hole that swallows all the good stuff. Uh-oh. <laughs> Joel and Nancy, thank you so much again for uh, joining us today. Well, thanks very much for having us, Frank. It's a pleasure. Okay, Simon the Smoky Monkey. You know what's in your uh, salt dressing is that EDTA. You know what it does? You know, it's short for uh, ethylenethymine tryptoacetate. And you know what it does? It accumulates metals, those uh, bad metals that oxidize everything. And that's uh, why EDTA is so good at uh, preserving your food. All right. All right, smoking monkey. <laughs> if you were a Smurf, I'd be after you. This is Gargamel. You Smurfs, you're taking my Smurf berries. But if you know what a Smurf berry is, I don't. I don't really care, in fact. I'd rather know how do molds reproduce. If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. I'm not going to win anything, but you just might be Smurfing. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.